This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by Michael Burns, a teaching minister in the Two Cities Church in Minneapolis, St. Paul. He taught high school history in the central city of Milwaukee for nearly 10 years before graduating from Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. He is a national and international biblical teacher at churches, schools of missions, and workshops. He has authored many books, including Crossing the Line, all Things to All People, and Escaping the Beast. Michael and his wife, Micretia, have two adult sons. And Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And, you know, I just said a lot of things about you and what you do, but um, maybe you want to give your own sort of introduction and talk about your family, your work, your passions, whatever whatever extra color you want to add to um, what I already said would be great. You know, I appreciate that. I always shy away a little bit from extended introductions. It's like, ah, it doesn't, I don't, you know, matter those details about me, but uh, we, you know, we do live here in Minnesota, although we are in the process of early next year, we're going to be moving uh, to Texas and, and Dallas and, uh, you know, what am I excited about? Probably the most thing is is my family. I have an amazing wife. She's a critical care nurse. And so she's been very busy here the last year and a half with, with COVID and working in those situations. And then we have an adult son who's 26, who works here in the Twin Cities and lives here. And our, our youngest son is a freshman in college. He's just started there. And um, so he's he's enjoying that, and we are getting used to having an empty house for the first time in our lives. Wow, that's uh, a lot of stuff happening. Uh, yeah, man, I can't I can't even imagine being um, in the the nursing and medical field at this time. It's crazy, and then dealing with with your kids growing up and all that stuff. That's a that's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of transition. Yeah. Well, um, maybe you can also say a little bit about how you know Marty and or how you know Bama or whatever, what, what your connection is there. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sure Marty will have some words to say about that as well. But tell me what, what that connection was like. You know, I think Mar- Marty and I have spoken about this before. I think we both encountered one another through other people coming up to us after events or whatever and asking us about one another. And I'd, I'd go teach at workshops or whatever and have people come up to me and be like, do you know Marty Solomon and Bama? And I was like, no, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you, you hear it so many times and then you start to go, wow, am I, am I missing something? Like, am I, this must be uh, something important. And so, you know, and I, I heard a few things and I, and I told Marty this, I said, I, you know, I tend to be a bit skeptical. So the first time I heard it, I, I looked it up and it was like, you know, what's wrong with Bayman? I'm doing searches <laughs> and, and Google to, you know, find, you know, what, what is this? And, and that's just, uh, that just tends to be my skeptical personality. And, um, and so then we, we got connected online and talked back and forth a little bit. And I said, Hey man, I'd love to have you on my podcast. And he was gracious enough to do that. And so then it occurred to me, well, if I'm going to have him on the podcast, it would only be polite to actually be familiar with Bama a little bit. So I, uh, I was actually on sabbatical before we, 
talked on the podcast. And so I, I spent a couple of weeks listening to a couple dozen episodes and um, enjoyed, you know, what I heard. And I, I was really struck by uh, the humility that uh, both of you have uh, really uh, on the episodes that I listened to. And so um, we uh, we had a really good chat on uh, my podcast. And then Marty was kind enough to ask me to come here. So we've not actually met uh, in the flesh, but, um, you know, discussions on over Zoom and email and those sorts of things uh, a number of times. It's bound to happen eventually. Um, I, I was trying to think of my own story, and I may have the order of events fuzzy. Okay. I, I, I won't, I, we'll see about order of events here. But I want to say that somewhere early in my introductory conversations about, do you know Michael Burns? Somebody said to me, you know, he's a fan of Sasquatch. Oh, well. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I think that that, because anybody that knows me well, and I think we've made it 240 episodes, Brent, without me bringing this up. But um, it's it's like a regular part of Michael's podcast. But nevertheless, I, I, I happen to be a huge Bigfoot enthusiast. Like I have this, I have this belief. There's something inside of us that we all have this conspiracy theory, like energy, and it can go one. It can like we can actually channel it to actual conspiracy theories, or we can entertain ourselves with episodes of Finding Bigfoot and everything else that's out there. So, uh, I found a real kindred spirit. That's interesting, and and absolutely, whoever told you that was true. We talked about that. I do. I I love the idea of Sasquatch, and you know. I'm impressed that you haven't brought it up on on your podcast. You're more disciplined than I am. In fact, my my <laughs> my co-hosts have recently had a chat with me, and they're like, "Maybe we should save Sasquatch for just some special occasions, and <laughs> not talk about it quite so much." And I was like, "Oh, okay." But it is pretty funny yeah. because, like, repeatedly now, constantly, people that listen to podcasts, I'll go places and they're giving me like little Sasquatch gifts, which is just super amazing. (laughs) So great. That's so great. See, that's why I got to talk about it more than I would get more goodies. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So I I don't think I knew that when I made the uh, Sasquatch-esque gif of you, Marty. I know. Yeah, no, you didn't. But I, I cherish that one more than any of the other ones that you've made. (laughs) <laughs> and and now we're going to get emails for access to all these Marty Solomon gifts. So, oh, I'm definitely putting that gift in the show notes. <laughs> so great. Um okay, so yeah, I think I I think through those conversations I learned that like Michael's going to be this kindred spirit like we were we were on the same page. I just hadn't taken the time to read to read books uh, and I keep begging people like Please stop sending me books. I have such a long bibliography of things that I really need to read right. and study. And for the most part, people have heeded that call. And then every now and then somebody either hasn't heard that call or just decides that they're going to ignore it and they send me books. And every now and then, um, I am I am super thankful because one of them was was your book, Escaping the Beast. And and I remember getting it in the mail and I opened it up and it was thick and big. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm so frustrated. And I put it on my stack and and eventually it comes up as my next book to read. And I am just like, whoa, like just this great read and just had this wonderful time, challenging, provocative. 
like I hadn't read a book um, like this since Jesus for President, which was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for me like I don't know, that was 15, 15 years ago almost, and so it'd been a long time since I had, and I spent a little bit of time in in that kind of topical study. I just hadn't done it in a while, and all of a sudden it awakened this stuff, and I was like, oh goodness. Um, so I just really appreciated it. So for those that uh, I'm, there's going to be listeners that don't know who you are, Michael, don't know about your books or what it is. Can you, we, we kind of want to focus our conversation about around escaping the beast today. And you've written some other books that we'll talk about. We'll ask you about, but can you give us just a, an explanation about what escaping the beast is about or what your heart was behind or just give us a little synopsis. Yeah. So uh, first I'll say that your initial angst about the size and thickness of the book was shared by my publisher. Uh, we, <laughs> we had a little go around about the, the length of it and, uh, I, I'm, I'm stubborn on certain things. And so there it is, but you know, my, my background before going into, you know, we'll say full-time ministry to use that phrase was uh, as a historian, a history teacher. And that was kind of my bent and my dream was to go further and further into the history field. And, um, you you know, particularly I had two real areas of passion, which seemed to be completely unrelated. One was sort of the ancient world, Greco-Roman, Egyptian, you know, era. And the other one is U.S. pre-Civil War and Civil War era. And so I I taught a a lot uh, about those. And then going into the ministry and and particularly in the bent of being a a Bible teacher, as opposed to, say, maybe, you know, solely a pastor or an evangelist type, um, uh, being focused on Bible teaching, I, I really zeroed in on and tried to specialize in the New Testament era and and that aspect, although, of course, try to teach all of it. But um, it was there that it really came together all of a sudden, this all this history of the country and pre-Civil War, and you get into enslavement and post- enslavement and all those sorts of issues and and started merging with the Bible teaching and seeing a need, um, uh, for me at least, that I, I saw two things happening, really two dynamics in the, the church in general that I noticed. One is not many churches were talking about the ideas of race and culture and how they impacted the church. And when you don't talk about things from a biblical perspective, then uh, well, the world, the culture around us is going to fill in our, you know, presuppositions and so on. And so, you know, so I saw a lot of ignoring it, but then when the conversations were happening, and that would be mostly outside directly of the context of the church on social media or whatever, they didn't seem to me to be you know, really have a biblical imagination at the root of it or a, a kingdom focus. It was just sort of regurgitating the the right and the left and the different perspectives that we see in the world. So I started teaching on that a lot and, and wrote a book, uh, Crossing the Line, Culture, Race, and Kingdom. And we just got asked to a lot of churches uh, to speak on the topic race and culture in the United States, if we go to Africa or something, it's it's tribalism and culture, but it's the same basic topics and, and discussion. And the more I did that, 
the more that, and my wife, my Krisha would come with me quite a bit and speak when she could as well. The more that we did that, the more that I realized every time we would talk about those things, just under the surface was this tension of politics that if we did a Q&A session, it would almost always start with a political question. You just couldn't escape uh, the political dynamic of it. And then, you know, I wrote Crossing Line in 2016. And if you think of your timeline nationally, there's a lot going on politically there. And so as we move forward over the next couple of years, those, the rifts in the church just became bigger and bigger. And what I think I started to recognize is that a, a lot of people, uh, again, were falling into that same dynamic of let's not talk about politics. And so then the default became just what we had raised up with, whether it was right or left or whatever. And we hadn't considered really, you know, the focus and allegiance to Jesus' kingdom and, and what that would mean for our personal and collective politics. And so these fault lines started to appear. And they were they could get ugly on social media and on other places, these arguments and Christians unfriending one another and going after one another and labeling one another. And so with with those two elements, both it being connected with our ministry and race and culture uh, and the kingdom of God and this increasing partisanship that seemed to be taking place in the country, I thought, man, I you know, let, let me take my let me take a crack at this. And so I spent a couple of years really diving into politics and political theory and the background of it and the, the you know tying it in with the history and and really trying to come forward that the main aim of the book is is how do kingdom people approach politics? And you know that that's what I, I try to discuss and I go into the book saying, look, I'm not claiming to have all the answers here. I just want to get the conversation going, uh, if nothing else, amongst, you know, my fellowship, my tradition, like, let's start having this conversation and just see if we're being biblical about it and go from there. Yeah, that's great. Um, And you you wrote one other book in between those two, right? Uh, All Things to All People came came in between. Um, I don't know. Correct. I don't know if you want to talk about like how that fits in, if any of that plays into Escaping the Beast. Um, you know, anything that you learned from the first couple of books that you've applied to Escaping the Beast? Like, I mean, you did talk about a lot of the a lot of the lead up, but if there's yeah. any any other connections there, um, I'd be curious to hear about that. Yeah. So, all things to all people. The subtitle there is the power of cultural humility, and there's actually a companion devotional book called The Crown That Will Last. Those are more focused on culture and how a church becomes inclusive of culture. Uh, you know, different different groups, different cultural instincts, and at, at a deeper level than just you know, hey, let's have a Tex-Mex night and share different kinds of food and music <laughs> from around the world at, at these deeper levels. But when you, again, like crossing the line, when you get into those issues, it starts to raise, uh, you know, th- there starts to be these outlying issues that become bigger and bigger. You, you know, you have immigration and you have uh, 
racial things and, and somebody wants to bring up inclusion and then somebody starts to talk, you know, and it just becomes political. Um, and so I, I never went in like, hey, let me write a book on politics. That wasn't my initial vision. Um, although I guess I'm weird in the sense of, you know, when people ask me like, hey, what's five years or 10 years down the road for my ministry? I don't know. And I never really try to answer that in a sense. Uh, and maybe that's wrong. It's always the way I've done it. I just say, hey, you know, I, I'll just trust that God will open up and I'll, I'll try to follow his direction. So I didn't have a vision uh, of doing anything on politics, but it just became it, it got to a point where you can't really talk about race and culture right now in our country without uh, having a vision of politics. And, and I will say this, I think the question that really drove me as I started to explore this realm more and more was, you know, there, there's kind of two extremes when it comes to Christian engagement in politics. There's uh, on, on one end, there's the sort of full born evangelical right sort of thing that we've experienced in the last five decades or so. And then on the other end, you have kind of the very, you know, pietistic, let's just withdraw from the world and be focused on the kingdom extreme. But I think the question that drove me is how do we engage without taking a position that would uh, find us where we in the 19th century, being okay and having nothing to say about something like slavery, like just sitting there and saying, well, we don't like it, but you know, we're withdrawing, we're just being the kingdom here and trying to save souls. And so that kind of became my foundational question is that, that drove me forward is how would we, you know, find a political ideology from the Bible, but one, you know, would it, address an issue like that and how would it so that's kind of what drove me uh, as i went through the process yeah i liked the idea that you brought up in the book of of like your desire to time travel and go back and be in those in those places in those times and and that i mean in a way that's sort of what we try to do um with bama is like give people the cultural and historical context to know you know what it, what was it like to be in that time and place what what sorts of things were on their minds as they were reading this passage, this message, hearing this um, prophet speak or whatever. So, um, yeah, I like that. Right. Well, there's a there's a term in um, Ghanaian language called Sankofa, if you go to Ghana. And it's, it's often, it's a term that's depicted by a bird retrieving a seed off its back. And it, it carries the idea of in order to move forward or understand your present, you must first journey back and understand the past. And I think that's definitely true of scripture and of our context. Like you have to understand the historical context, uh, especially of scripture, like what was going on, what was being addressed, because, uh, you know, otherwise you'll miss it. You'll, you'll dive into a passage like 1 Corinthians 6 and just see Paul saying, hey, you know, why are you taking each other to court and come away thinking that the whole point of that passage is just a prohibition on going to court and not seeing the whole social inequity of the Roman court system and why Paul is telling them to stay away from it, what he's actually challenging them on. And so we miss a lot of those challenges. 
if we don't understand the, the history of, of the text and, and what's happened in the past. So, yeah, Michael, you, you said something like a couple of things there I wanted to follow up on. Um, uh, first one, quick, quick question, quick answer. Like you mentioned, like you talk about these things and it just fires us up. Like there, what has the response been as you've had these conversations? Do people react positively? Do people react negatively? Is there always a major kind of explosive reaction or how has that impacted you? Yeah. You know, when I was writing the book, I kind of joked around and thought like, okay, well, this will do it. This will make sure I have no friends when I'm done because, <laughs> you know, you kind of go after both sides in a sense and, and challenge them. I think that I thought maybe the reaction would be uh, more negative than it's been. Sure. It's actually been uh, overwhelmingly positive. That doesn't mean that there's not people who are reading it, tossing it in the fireplace. Uh, I don't know, but I'm I'm not hearing a, a ton of that. Uh, but I think if I'm honest, I, I would rather have a passionate disagreement than people who read it and are just like, okay, well, that was nice and and don't do much with it. And it's not that it's my book or my reading, but it's like, man, I, I think when you look at how the kingdom is to engage in the world of politics and all that stuff, it, it should evoke some sort of emotional and passionate response from us right. and, and not just being tepid about it but i would say it's 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 been mostly overwhelmingly positive oh that's that's actually really encouraging to hear i don't know if i was expecting that but that's good <laughs> that's really good but well here's the other question i had and it, you segued really nice into it in your previous comments um it, uh, some of my own journey that i i've been on in this kind of topical realm i can remember like i said about 15 years ago Reading Jesus for President. It was right. It was right before I went to Israel for the first time. So, I mean, the timing of all those things was just crazy. How a whole bunch of things collided, like you said, history and ideology, and and Claiborne was talking. And Brent, we can throw a link to Jesus for President in those show notes too, if we want to. Oh, I've already got it in there. <laughs> one of my favorite books. One of my top five favorite books. And he was he was pulling on this language. I don't know if he got it from Yoder or he had, he had a great bibliography in there, but. He he was really the one responsible for, in my consciousness, this empire versus shalom dichotomy, this dialogue, this these two kingdoms, a tale of two kingdoms we call it in the podcast, empire versus shalom. And a lot of that came as I kind of went through and studied. And and Claiborne was making this case like we're told in this world that there's these are the rules, this is the these are this is the game board, and these are the pieces, and this is the game you have to play. And yet we're being invited to a different conversation, a kingdom conversation. That's not, it's not conservative nor progressive. It's not Republican nor Democrat. It is, in Claiborne's poetic language, the party of the slain lamb. Yeah, like It's a completely new way of coming at things. So I came out of that book, like, especially as this young, you know, young kid in my mid twenties, like I, I was like, oh yes, I don't have to give into this dichotomy of picking which side is right. I get to be a part of a different conversation. So in that part of my life, I had kind of pushed off this polit and maybe maybe what I did was I went in that pietistic direction you referenced. Like I I stepped away and said politics is 
Like kingdom and politics are two separate things. Now, in the meantime, I would read all these people that were like, yeah, but the message of the kingdom is very political. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's very political, but it's not like American politics. It's political on a very much larger, bigger scale. And so then I kept going, right? And then the world kept evolving. And I started waking up to some of these other issues that you were talking about. And in in my experience and my consciousness, probably disconnected from politics. I was waking up to things about race in our in our country and in my life, most importantly. And I'm wrestling with some of those things and I'm learning and I'm listening. I'm asking questions. And I can remember somebody confronting me on kind of that pietistic separation from politics. And they said, well, that's that's really nice, but that's and and they used language about my privilege. You're in a place where you're privileged enough that you can step away and it doesn't really impact you. Your life's really not going to be. And I went, Oh goodness gracious. And so I kept learning, I kept growing. And then I felt like I was in a season where I was like, okay, well I, I mean, I even did a thing on YouTube, which we won't link in the comments, Brent. Um, (laughs) But I I did a thing on YouTube where I was basically asking us to get engaged um, because people need other people rather than ourselves, rather than our own selfish ideology or our own selfish desires, other people needed us. Um, yeah. and, and we needed to kind of lay down our own voice on behalf of others, lay down our life on behalf of others. And so that, so I had been there for the last few years and then I got your book and I'm reading through it and I'm like, cause really you're making some similar arguments to Claiborne and I, I wasn't going back to that same place, but you were pulling me kind of back in this direction of, yeah, but there's still like a different conversation that's not Republican or Democrat. It's not American politics. It's a kingdom-driven conversation. Um, and, and I felt like it brought me full circle somewhere, somewhat to where I started. And and you speak to that sense um, – what we're called to do is not align with any political ideology as far as American political ideology, but we're supposed to offer the world an alternative way of ordering ourselves. Right. Um, can you speak to that idea some? And and maybe if you even have any thoughts about that angst that in the last couple decades of my life, I feel like I've vacillated between may, maybe what whatever you want to speak to to that. I identify with the angst you're speaking about. I, I, I don't see how you can avoid it because I don't, it, it's not clear cut. It's, it, it's, you know, it's just not like that. Scripture is not like that. That's not how scripture forms us. Uh, it's, it's that struggle and that wrestling. I even see that, of course, in that, you know, the Jerusalem Council passage in Acts 15, where they write the letter, and it's like, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And there's this partnership of like, well, we think this is what the Spirit's doing, but we're not going to totally excuse ourselves of the responsibility that we've made choices here as well. And I think a big part of this comes with, and it's it's an idea that I would love to see grasped more and more in Christianity is is the coming of the age to come in the life of Christ, that mm-hmm. life of the age to come that you know Jesus seems to be describing in the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, John talks all about it. It's in a lot of modern English translations, it's eternal life, but it's actually the Zoeianos, that life of the coming age that has broken in through Jesus and allows us to live in a different sort of way to 
uh, you know, do God's will on earth as though we were in heaven, in his presence, and for the world to look like and go, oh, that's what a little bit of what the future with God is going to look like. And so mm. I, I believe our purpose as kingdom people is different than just having successful lives. It's different than just uh, fighting for the oppressed. That's part of what we do, but it's it's doing it through this kingdom vision and calling people to an alternative, renewed way to live, the way of the land, where, you know, even there's this tension of, man, you, you, you're called to stand up for the oppressed, but love your enemies and not exercise power over other people, but lay down your life. So there's all these tensions pulling at us that will cause us to to not come up with simple formulas that will cause us to, in each situation, go, okay, we've got to figure out what does the kingdom look like in this instance. But I, I think one of the things that makes it more challenging and, and pulls us to those extremes of either full-on culture wars, you know, religious right sort of thing, and then the, the whole pietistic approach is it, it seems like it becomes either or. Like I'm either I'm fully embraced of the kingdoms of the world and the way they operate in politics, or I completely reject them. And then you get into positions like, well, you know, our government's bad. Doesn't Romans 13 say that God, you know, gives them the power and and the sword to keep peace and that sort of stuff? And the answer would be yes. But what I think, and it's kind of one of the cases I try to make in this book, is that we divorce Romans 12, for instance, from Romans 13. In Romans 12, I, I believe Paul lays out the kingdom ethic, where you're you're loving your enemies, you're not seeking vengeance, you're not um, trying to take advantage of other people. Your your love is sincere. You're devoted to others. That's a, a vision of the role or vocation of kingdom people. And then in thirteen, he says, "But be subject to these ruling authorities." In other words, don't deny that they have a role or existence. They have a place too. The nations have a place. God utilizes them to keep peace and to a degree, uh, to keep justice to a degree, to keep order to a degree. And I think our role becomes showing an alternative to that, but also then trying to keep those governments and systems uh, to keep them to their calling and vocation of bringing justice and bringing peace. And they often veer from that, some more than others. But, you know, at the end of that section where he's saying, okay, here's here's the kingdom role in chapter 12. Here is the, the role of the nations in chapter 13. He returns in, I think it's verse 8, back to the kingdom vocation and says, so let no debt remain outstanding except to love. That's that's the call for kingdom people is what does it look like to love here? And so I think that's where our imaginations need to be reformed is it, it's not about, you, you know, people don't get pulled into the kingdom because you passed a law that forces them to be moral. People get pulled into the kingdom by seeing the kingdom lived out, seeing an alternative. And, and that's 
what I'm trying to grasp for in the book, but there's lots of tensions and lots of difficulties with that. So it's, it's an ongoing conversation. And I think once we figure it out, you know, even to a certain degree in one place in time, the context changes and now we have to have the conversation all over again. So I'm kind of uh, skeptical by nature, I think, as you mentioned earlier as well um, for yourself. Well, I like that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, so we talk about all of this stuff and I'm like, these, these are all great ideas. Um, but it kind of seems like it's not even possible. Like, sure. is, is any of this practically attainable um, for God's people? Like, is there any hope? Like, uh, I, I'm always looking for the hope. I love hope. I love seeing hope. Um, but I'm not always good at like finding it in situations like this. Like, do you see any hope for for this idea of being able to live a true kingdom lifestyle? I, I do. I do. Because I, I think there are certainly, you know, if we really wanted to dive into history, there there are times and places where people were doing this to one degree or another. But I, I think hope also comes from the very fact that we see the New Testament church doing it. We see the church in the you know, centuries after that, late first century, second century, third century, doing it imperfectly, certainly, but doing it in a context with the Roman power and Roman empire that's very similar to our own in a lot, a lot of ways. I, you know, I was sort of confronted with that in college, studying history before I was, you know, in ministry or really focused on Christianity or anything like that was the, the parallels between the Roman context and empire and our own day. And there's certainly a lot of differences, but uh, the, the point being the, the church of that time did this in a very similar context. And so I think that offers hope. I, I think there's also hope to me, and, and this is no denigration towards my generation or older generations, but it, it seems to me that the younger generation uh, really hungers for this. Like they, they are animated by this vision of the kingdom. I'm not even trying to imply that they're more spiritual or holy than other generations. I think this is just for a number of reasons, there's this confluence of things coming together where the younger generation, 35 and under, they they hear about the kingdom and they go, I want that. I, I, I want to, you know, I want to help those in need, but I want to be kingdom focused. And so when, when they find this vision of there's there's a way to do both uh i think they go after it and it you know in my opinion this is the last thing i'll say on that question is you know i think i'm just trying to start the conversation like i said i think there needs to be people far smarter than i am who have expertise and economics and in, you know, legal systems and justice and all these different vocations that have this kingdom imagination and, and passion and vision to push forward and say, here's what it's going to look like. Here's how we spread God's kingdom and demonstrate it in this area. I, I'm just trying to roll out the ball and get the game started. But does does that answer your question, Brett? Yeah, I think so. And one one of the things that um, I was kind of thinking about, like you talk about the younger generation, 
And I'm wondering, like, as you're in your experience as a high school history teacher, um, is, is, are there ways that the younger generation looks at history that are different than how you or your peers did when you were studying in school that, that you've noticed that you that you think applies to this? Well, yes, I think in the sense of and I don't want to go too far afield here of what you know you you guys may want to talk about here but i think in the in the sense of um they have their eyes open a little more to the myth of american innocence where you know when i was a kid it's like man everything america did was good and just and i'm not bashing america i'm not saying everything that we do is wrong but it was sort of on the other extreme of almost to the point where there's for a lot of Americans, we might not admit this, but in practicality, there's this blurring between the kingdom of God and the United States of America that makes it really difficult to, you know, actually see some of these things clearly. And so I think uh, where the younger generation is willing to challenge some of those myths and look at some of those things. Now, I think they can go too far with that sometimes and completely demonize the country and make it seem like it's the biggest evil or worst place to live ever. And I don't, I don't think that's true either. And, and that comes across to the older generation sometimes, and then they overreact and like, oh, these kids hate America. But I, I, I think there's some value in stepping back and saying, you know, were we really a Christian nation? Is that even possible? Is that a biblical category that's even available? Or have we created a category and then sort of built a fantasy around that created category? And and because of that, missed really the fullness of what the kingdom alternative is supposed to be. Oh, goodness. Um there's so much goodness in there that I want to talk about, but I'm going to move to my next question. My notes, and we're going to be here for like three hours because um, there was <laughs> so much great uh, stuff in there that that you said. We'll, we'll leave it as a wrestling match for the listener to consider <laughs> in their own hearts. Yeah, I'm I'm already afraid of all the scratches that we're itching on people and the negative emails I'm going to get. So we're just going to keep on moving here. I'm going to keep on going. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, one of the parts of the book, Michael, that I loved, it got me thinking. I loved it and I hated it. Like it was one of those things I was like, no, I, I mean, I hate that idea. And, but it would just wouldn't leave me alone. I'm like, man, I love that idea. Um, yeah. Was at some point you start talking about how there is this scholarly perspective that says one of the ways that we could read the idea of faith, um, faith in Christ, that kind of idea uh, would be allegiance. Um, yes. And I, you know, I'm very anti right kingdom theology guy. So I was like, ah, oh, I, I, allegiance, well, that's not, and then, but I was like, man, that's actually, when it comes to kingdom theology, that's so good. Um, and I just couldn't like get that out of my head. So what a, like, like, that's just a dynamic idea, um, a dynamic rephrasing. If nothing more than just a thought process, it's fantastic. What are the, what are the parts of that idea that stand out to you the most or that you like 
Um, just riff on that for a moment. Sure. Well, yeah, you know, that that idea, and, and I'm sure the the seeds of it may go back even farther, but I think some of it comes from some of N.T. Wright's writing and Gorman and some of these guys, but the, the, the author's written the most about that concept would be Matthew Bates, I think. And he has sure. several books uh, around that idea. And yeah, it's, it's really, it's not upending the, the, you know, the word pistis faith that it doesn't mean trust or it doesn't mean belief or any of that. But in, in looking at ancient examples, both biblical in their context and extra biblical, you, you begin to develop this understanding that that word pistis when when used especially in reference to an an entity like a nation or a leader carried with it the idea of allegiance and you know that loyalty that you give and it's interesting to me because i i think the history of the word repentance uh, metanoia in the Greek sort of is wrapped up in that too, where that was often a word that came from the military world, where you would call an opponent to repentance. In other words, lay down your allegiances to that side and come over and fight on our side, or we're going to, you know, take you out and, and kill you. That's what repentance was. You switch sides, you switch allegiances. And, and so it's that idea of Jesus being king in his kingdom, calling us to an allegiance uh, that makes all other things secondary. Uh, By nature, you know, if you're allegiant to a leader, you can't be allegiant to another leader. Or if you're allegiant to a kingdom, you can't have an allegiance uh, to uh, another entity like that. And so I think it challenges us in a lot of ways, our, our identity, our, our national identities are, you know, all of that. Um, but it, it, you know, I'm, I'm pulled back constantly to that declaration. Like Paul writes about Romans 10, when he, he seems to be inferring that at, at baptism or something similar, the, the Christians would declare that Jesus is Lord. And, that's a that's a really dangerous phrase in the first century because you're implying because the the more well known phrase at the time would be Caesar is Lord, and so you're implying that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, and that's the very charge we see in Acts 17, where you know this hullabaloo breaks out and and they start to say, hey, these guys are are proclaiming that there's another king than Caesar, because I I do think it's important for us to understand that. If, if a bunch of guys were just going around the ancient Roman world saying, hey, we want to tell you about this new uh, God that died for your sins and he'll forgive your sins. And one day after you die, you can go up and live with him forever. Have your sins forgiven and be in heaven. If that's the sole content of the gospel, Rome doesn't care. Rome is, is pretty, you know, inclusive with stuff like that. What what gets Rome's attention is this allegiance idea that it was calling them to see Jesus as king, to live a different way, to upend the economic injustices, the social inequities, all of those things, to live a, an entirely different way, to blur the lines of status and uh, you know all of those things and, and call people to live together as family. 
that's what caught the Romans' attention. It was this this theopolitical aspect of the kingdom. And, and I'm not discounting the the more classic, you know, our sins are forgiven. Yes, you know, all of those things are important. But it's it's the fullness of the kingdom and the challenge of allegiance that caught Rome's attention. Well, I, yeah, and I couldn't think of anything more relevant because I feel like so many of us in our world, like we have these, um, whether they're directly political, we we have these allegiances to whatever worldview that we have, and Jesus happens to fit into it nicely. Correct. Rather, rather than we have an allegiance to Jesus, and our worldview may happen to overlap, but our allegiance goes the other direction. I, and I see that on both sides of our political spectrums and any other the bifurcated linear scales that we use. Like we do that with the progressive mindset, just as much as conservatives do it with their ideology. Like there's this sense of like, well, this is the thing I'm committed to, and so was Jesus. No, 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 no. It it should be <laughs> Jesus was committed to this thing and I follow him. Yeah. Like it's not just convenient that Jesus matches what I believe. <laughs> that's and and right. that's actually if we actually pause and think about that that but anyway, uh, that's that's something I thought. Brent, what do you got? So I I was thinking kind of, you know, we we use this like conquest sort of idea um and and we say that we're we're doing it for Jesus, like we're conquering the world for Jesus or we're you know, expanding the kingdom in like a, not, not in the, not in the kingdom as we're trying to talk about it, but, but in the like, oh, we want to, we want to control the world. We want to have, you know, this very imperial sort of dominion and, and ascribe it to Christ. And sometimes we use his own language. We're like, oh, if you're not with us, you're against us. And we like, it's this battle. It's this us versus them mentality. Um, what, what are some things that you found helpful to step back from that to, to like get us out of that because that's just how we've been thinking about things. Yeah. We, as in Christians in general, we've been thinking about it like that for so long. Um, sometimes, you know, in the, in the case of the crusades or whatever, like in a, in a very real physical violent sense, sometimes less so, but how do we get out of that mentality? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, And uh, an important one. And I think, it starts as do so much things biblically in Genesis 1, where we find at the apex of creation that we're made in the image of God. And doing incredibly heavy lifting in the English phrasing of that sentence is the preposition in, that we're made in the image of God, not with the image of God. So, so in other words, it's an, it's something about the image of God that's representing and reflecting God is inherent to each one of us, to who we are as humans. It's not we're not with the image of God. It's not an add-on. It's not a, a special bonus. We, we all are image bearers, and you know one of the things that we see the the great serpent doing in the biblical text is. Immediately then in verse th- or chapter three, he comes and he convinces Adam and Eve that they have a different vocation than being image bearer. They're not going to reflect the will and, and uh, reign of God. They're, they're, they're better than that. They're images in a sense. They're gods themselves. And it's this lie of superiority. So Satan is constantly in different ways 
going after the concept of image bearing because uh, once we strip ourselves of that, humans sin not because we're human. It's because we become less than human. Right. We we drop the role of image bearing, and and we all have it. And so as as soon as we do that, and often it's through the lie of superiority. Well, my group is better than your group. My group is smarter. My group has higher status. My group is born noble. Whatever it is, my group is better because of the color of their skin. We see multiple versions of this throughout history. Once we buy into that superiority, we then make other groups inferior, and we other them, and then we label them. And once we've labeled them, as the Jewish theologian Martin Buber says, it becomes, instead of an I and you relationship, it becomes I and it. You're now a thing. I've labeled you. I've quantified you. And, you know, I've othered you. And that's a, a huge violation of scripture. And I see it so often where we, this labeling, you know, you're, you're a, a liberal, you're a Democrat, you're a Marxist, I'm an anti-racist, you know, like, okay, racism bad, but racist is labeling that other person. And so once we start to label, then we other, we put you in the category of it, and it creates all of these divisions. And I think one of the things that exacerbates that or makes that worse is you know, there's the the concept, is, especially in my uh, tradition and family of churches, we we really believe in in discipling. You know, Matthew 28, we teach one another in various different ways, everything that Jesus commanded us to do, and we get together and we talk about discipling, and it, it, and what it should be at its best is helping us to see the world through kingdom eyes and to become more and more like Jesus. But in, in the letters of John, he talks about there's Christ and there's antichrists. And the, the way he uses that term antichrist is it's an instead of Christ. It's like a counterfeit Messiah. And I think just like there's good biblical discipling, there's also anti-discipling. And we see that everywhere. And it, it's a sad situation where I can tell where people will come down on issues and how they'll approach issues and how they'll treat other people more uh, based on what news media organization they tend to watch than whether they are a follower of Jesus or not, or say they are. And so whether it's media, social media, the culture around us, we're getting all this sort of anti-discipling that we don't filter through. We just let it come in as though it's not going to impact our world. And then we start to, we start to interpret the Bible through the lens of our anti-discipling rather than the other way around, which is it's exactly what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, when he says, you know, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We examine every thought. We we look at the the systems and structures and and you know plans of the world, all of that, the ideas, the solutions. And, and we filter it through a kingdom vision. And I think far too often uh, we don't. And we wind up splitting and othering and having fights amongst believers over political things. Like that, that's, that's tragic. 
and it's it's not something. In fact, one of the one of the most fun things I, I did in, in the book is in chapter twelve. I think it is. I sort of imagined this discovered text of writing between Peter and Paul having a a political argument. It's one of your best moments in the book. It's fantastic. (laughs) I had a blast writing that. And they're arguing over whether Nero or, uh, you know, uh, Claudius is a, is a better emperor. And then at the end I said, okay, these aren't real manuscripts. I've made them up. Um, Can you imagine Peter and Paul arguing about that? No, but I can sure imagine disciples in the 21st century having arguments like that because I've seen it. And, Pierced and so to I, the I, heart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think it all comes back to that uh, being image bearers. Oh, man, uh, just so much. I'm going to run out of time and I'll run out of hard drive. So I'm moving on to my next question. Um, <laughs> uh so just kind of just a last summary of my experience with the book. You, you have these three parts. This book is kind of designed around three parts, Escaping the Beast is. The first part is this history. I love the history of, of part of book one. Uh, you did throw shade at my personal position that it's written during the reign of Domitian. And you threw shade at the fact that there's no historical evidence for a major persecution. But tomato, tomato, we can disagree with that later. Um, but, <laughs> okay. but, but part number one was great. I love that. It was my, it was my favorite part of the book. Um, I love the clarity of part two, where you, I, I think what you're, what you're doing there is you're bridging the gap between that historical context and our current one, uh, here and particularly the American context. Although I'm sure that these things still apply. They're not exclusive to American context only. Um, and, and, and then you, you, I, I just appreciated how you spoke to that world and, and the relevance of that. And then you really did, in my mind, the unimaginable. Like, you did what even Claiborne didn't do in his book. Like, you tried to practically apply in part three. Um, you tried to practically apply these stuff. You you boldly went uh, where very few people <laughs> try to go. Um, and, yeah. and I just have mad props for you taking, taking us there. I mean, those, that's probably the part where I had kind of the most little nuances and little, but that's, of course, of course we did because that's applying this is where this gets to be. It's one thing to have abstract concepts. It's the difficult thing to apply this. And what I love is that you facilitated a practical conversation. I realize it's a book. I realize it's all one-sided author to audience, but you were really facilitating a larger conversation. Like we may disagree on the nuance of this thing or that detail, right? But that's exactly what you would expect about this. Can you speak to that? This sense that Michael Burns is not trying to write some new political catechism, but instead you're trying to invite us into some kind of larger and better dialogue. Can can you kind of wrap us up by speaking to that? Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, with the with the tip of my hat to NT Wright, I often say at the beginning of workshops. 10% of what I'm going to tell you today is wrong. I just don't know which 10%. And I I feel that way about the first section. I think I would bump that up to 20% in the second section and in the third section, a minimum of 30%. And, and so I would expect people to disagree with some of those aspects or say, I'm not, let's, let's talk about that and, and go back and forth. That's kind of the point. 
but I, I, I feel like somebody's got to lay down the first thought, you know, a, a place to start yeah. it. A meeting that has no agenda is probably not going to get as much done as someone who comes in and says, here's my idea. Now let's rip it apart or build on it or whatever. Um, and I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with people as, as long as I go in and wrestle with it from a kingdom perspective, like let's, let's wrestle, let's talk, let's debate. You might, you know, you could very easily convince me that to take a different position in some of those things. I, I mean, I, you know, have you ever read a book and agreed with everything in it? That would be crazy to me. Um, I, I can't imagine even my favorite authors. I, I find stuff that I'm like, eh, you, you know, I feel like if you read a, an entire book and agreed with everything, either, you know, it's scripture or mm-hmm. uh, you haven't read it very discerningly. Yep. So I, I think, again, you know, to kind of something I alluded to before, what, what that third section to me is where it tries to get really practical. It, it's a, it's a plea. It's a like, Hey, can we please have this conversation? And can people smarter than I am pick this up and say, mm. here's what this looks like in, in this area, you know, here's, here's what it looks like in economics. Here's what it looks like with to help those who are housing insecure, or here's what it looks like in racial justice. And here's what it looks like when it comes to issues of abortion, um, you know, and life and all, all of those things. So it really is trying to get the conversation going. And, and in my mind, as long as we're debating and actually then implementing and living out like what the kingdom looks like in this situation, then that's mission accomplished. I'm not trying to get everybody to agree that I have, uh, you know, I have unlocked the key to the biblical witness in the 21st century and, and follow me. Um, I, I just am not smart enough to do anything close to that, nor would I want to. Well, and it's interesting, like Marty said it, you know, in his question, both of the people who were writing in the forward to your book said it like, Hey, you're not going to agree with everything like this. Like, Hey, just, just so you're prepared, like, like you're not going to agree with everything. And I, and I don't expect you to have an answer for this, but it's like, when did we, when did we get to the point where we're afraid to disagree with someone and be okay with that? It's just kind of like, we're, we're all kind of on edge about like, Oh, you either have to completely agree with everything somebody says or yeah. everything they say is terrible and you have to throw it all away. You know, it's just, uh, I think that's some of that anti-discipline coming from our media and different things. Like you're, you're either fully with us or you're Satan, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're, you're Hitler, you're, you know, and we go to those extremes and invectives. And, and I think that has, that attitude has has seeped into the church where it's like, man, if if you don't agree with me 100%, then I'm going to label you. I'm going to put you in this other category. I'm going to shut you down. And sometimes the people who cry the most about cancel culture engage in it just as much. They just call <laughs> it other things. <laughs> oh, that's the truth. Oh, <laughs> man. Spitting bars there. Love it. <laughs> I love it. Um. Yeah. Hey, as we close this down, Michael, is there anything else that you're working on, things you're involved with, anything you're excited about, anything that you'd like to share and put on our radar, anything we need to know about from you? Man, you know, I I do have, um, you know, we, we engage in a lot of these discussions on my podcast, if I can just say 
the, the name of that, not to compete with yours or anything, but the All Things to All People podcast. We, we try to have these discussions. I, I am working on a book uh, coming up. It'll be out, I think, next year uh, on the, the spiritual battle of race. And we're going to kind of get into some of those things I talked about, the, the image bearing and the lie of superiority and how that played out in the church in Corinth and how Paul addresses it. And then as we look at Paul's solutions and challenges to their version of the lie, which was status, how that then applies to one of our big versions of that lie of superiority, which is the the color of skin and race and how that's impacted our culture and society. So that that's kind of what I'm working on. Uh, that'll that'll come out hopefully middle of next year. Well, maybe when you're done with that, you can get on to some more relevant material. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> that was a joke, everybody. I think yeah. that's quite relevant for our world today. Yes, yes. Uh, and you're absolutely welcome to plug your podcast. The one thing I can say for sure about our listeners is that uh, our listeners like listening to podcasts, apparently. So this is the perfect, perfect time to talk about that. Um, is there is there like a spot where people can find you specifically, get connected to you, reach out, ask questions, whatever that you want to mention? Yeah, um, the, the there's two spots. One is there's a, a website, MichaelBurnsTeachingMinistry.com, um, and then um, also the probably the easiest way if they want to ask questions or whatever would be all things to all people podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And when he says like, you know, ask questions or whatever, that means all those negative emails that you want to send to me, you can just direct right on over to Michael who. Right. (laughs) Thanks for that, Marty. (laughs) Oh man. Well, we, I I will say, could I just say though, if you're going to send me a negative email, um, at least have read my book first. Yes. <laughs> That's asking a lot. Yes. That's asking I a lot, but it. I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, I didn't even realize that you, your book was a thick book because I just got the, the, uh, ebook version and I'm just like, Oh, okay. Just, uh, you know, dive right in. Not even, not even realize what I was getting myself into. There you go. It's like running hills in the dark, right? They seem easier because you can't see the, how steep they are. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll do it uh, for this episode. This has been um, a fun, hopefully challenging uh, conversation. Yeah. Let me just uh, break in and just say thanks, Michael. I always tell our guests thanks and don't want to miss that with you. I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you writing the book. appreciate the work you do and the way you contribute to the larger kingdom. But thanks for coming on the conversation today. And um, uh, yeah, diving into the deep end of this stuff. It's uh, It was helpful for me, I'm sure, for others. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. If people have made it 250 episodes into Bama and aren't comfortable with wrestling with hard topics, then I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what's going on. So, uh, yeah, this is this is good on every level. So, uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And uh, Michael listed off his uh, contact information, but all of that stuff will be in the show notes as well. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.